Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Hey everybody, welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is a very special episode. We are going to be sitting down today with Mark Harris. And Mark Harris, if you don't know, is an author and really an amazing biographer. I mean, Amy, like he has written some like really classic uh, books that talk a lot about things that we're talking about on the show all the time. Oh, I mean, I feel like he's always coming up from Pictures at a Revolution to 5K and back. Like, he does great work in film scholarship. And his new book is so perfect to talk about the show. It's a really in-depth biography of Mike Nichols, a director we've talked a lot about here. Of course, he directed The Graduate. He directed uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. His influence and the people he met extends through so many films that we have talked about on this show. I mean, even from the fact that I learned reading this book that when he was prepping to do Virginia Woolf, his very first film, he was watching 400 Blows over again, over and over again, because he was like, this is a film made by a first time director. I'm a first time director, psyching himself up. So I think Mark is somebody we have to talk about because I want to talk about Mike with the guy who is the number one Mike expert. I remember, you know, when I started reading this book, just because I'm a fan of Mike Nichols, the thing that got me uh, very much in the beginning was how he said his his favorite movie and his guiding light for every film is A Place in the Sun, which we just spoke about. And it's interesting to think about that film and, and really about love and the connections and the small, intimate moments. And you could really see, while, you know, his work is very different, it does exist in these these uh this idea of like wanting to be somebody else wanting to you know want doing things for love doing things you know making bad choices it really was fascinating to just have seen that film and then see how that affects all of his work so um if you're a fan of this show uh i think 
you definitely will love this book, but if you need to have some convincing, uh, I'm excited to introduce our guest today, which is Mark Harris. Please welcome Mark. So Mark, I have to tell you, I love your book, and I feel like it is truly one of the best books I've read about acting and writing and directing. And I know it's not a book about acting, writing, and directing, but it's about this you know, this man, Mike Nichols, who I don't think I fully understood his scope and his touch in the pop culture world that we live in. Like, he really has so many tentacles out there. Um, how did you find out, like, you wanted to, like, go after him? Like, what, what was your entry point to him to know that this is a biography? Well, thank you. I mean, I was interested in Mike Nichols, because I thought he had a really unique career. I mean, of course, being a theater director, being a movie director, sustaining both of those careers at the same time over 50 years and preceding both of those careers by a career as a performer, I I thought just by the definition of his life, that would be an interesting thing to explore. But I actually, it, it sounds silly because he's a director, but I don't think I knew how much it was going to be a book about directing until I yeah. got really like deeply into the research. And, and then by extension, I didn't know how much writing a book about directing was also going to mean writing a book about acting and writing a book about writing. Like in retrospect, it seems, of course I should have known that, but you know, it, it can always surprise you and where, where you think you're going, where you start is not necessarily where you end up. You know, I was going to say that I feel like the people that you spoke to really paint this picture in an interesting way. And they all bring to the table something small. Like, I feel like I was describing it to a friend and said, this is everyone who has been touched by Mike Nichols who had, like, one great thing. And they go, oh, you know what Mike Nichols told me? And you've collected all of those things. And it really paints this amazing picture of him in a way. But it is, like, it's a set designer. It is an actor that may not be the most successful actor that we know but was in a play with him. Or, it was, you know, it's, you get this really full perspective. And I imagine even that going in through all that work, because there's so many actors, so many directors, so many people that you had to kind of go through – I mean, how do you even begin the research on a 50-year career? I mean, I started, in terms of the interviews, by making a list of everyone who uh, I could find, who I imagined sort of brushed up against him in any meaningful way at any point, who was still alive. And and it was probably between 500 and 600 people. And I ended up talking to, um, I would say, about 250 of them, but... It is a strange thing because you have a list in your head of of your big gets, the the people you really, really want. And, of course, some of them are on that list for a reason because you know they're going to give you great stuff. But but I have found over the years, and, and I learned this on my first book a little bit, is the actor who doesn't have a very big part or the editor or the production designer or the assistant um, it is is often going to have stories that are at least as interesting and a perspective that's at least as interesting as the star. In a play, for instance, if, if, if someone has a small supporting part, they have a lot of time to watch how everything is unfolding. And they maybe had more time to observe things than a star would have. So, so, Whatever hierarchy I had imagined would exist uh, it kind of collapsed as soon as I started doing the interviews, right. with the exception of the fact that 
Elaine May was always at the very, very top of the list of people I felt I had to get. And, and in retrospect, that is exactly where she belonged. Speaking of the scope and everybody he met over his lifetime, it really struck me because here on Unspooled, you know, of course we talked about The Graduate. Of course we talked about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And maybe we're going to get to talk about him a little bit more here. But I've always pictured Mike Nichols showing up in Hollywood as like this wonderkin new voice, new generation entering. And yet you set the stage with him coming to Hollywood and being welcomed by like Wilder, Joseph Mankiewicz, Otto Preminger, people saying like, come into us, these old masters ushering him into Hollywood and giving him important advice. I keep wondering if there is a parallel uh, to, to now. I mean, I keep wondering whether a, a young director could emerge who would uh, suddenly be um, welcomed by, you know, the whole roster of established A-list masters. Um, and one reason the parallel is hard to find is nobody comes from theater anymore to to, su- to suddenly emerge after directing just a handful of hit plays over a very short period of time and just rocket straight from there into, you know, a top-tier movie assignment. It's just inconceivable now that someone who had never directed a movie would have been entrusted with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Like you just, you you don't get to come out of the gate doing that. And one thing I'm fascinated by about Nichols, and I stayed fascinated throughout the book, was he's sort of both things at once. Like he is this wunderkind, can do no wrong, hit after hit after hit, of course I can do this, boundlessly confident person who who breezes into Hollywood at the age of 34, ready to direct Virginia Woolf. And he's also this guy who is a complete outsider, who has no Hollywood experience, who literally has to go to his friend, Anthony Perkins, and say, what are lenses? How does a camera work? Um, you know, how can I show two people coming through the door without the door hitting me in the face? Like, <laughs> he, he's he's completely unschooled, but at the same time, he's really confident that he can learn quickly what he needs to learn. Uh, I would argue that he walks this tightrope his entire career where there's a little bit of like a self-sabotage element to it. Can I pull it off? Can I do this thing? And, and you know, it's when he's first taking these acting classes, he's almost on the outside of it. And then he kind of find something and it clicks and it's with uh, Elaine May and it and it it fires and then all of a sudden it just kind of takes off and i feel like this entire book and i don't know if it's also his depression that i think is a part of who he is but his career is so interesting because you see him prepare for Virginia Woolf in a way that everything is thought out the same way with the graduate and then you see him approach other things kind of carefree and and kind of like let me let me just pull it off let me see if i can pull it off and like oh that didn't work and then you, and then we re- repeat that cycle where prepare 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 and then eh, we'll see like i feel like he really walked this weird tightrope in his career of how he approached work i think it's true i mean i don't think he was trying to get away with anything but i think he had a a really strong case of imposter syndrome you know that fought within him against his natural confidence because he he really was at the same time the guy who walked into his first rehearsal room on his first day uh working on barefoot in the park um which was headed to broadway and and says and i believe this that he instantly knew that this was his job that what he was supposed to be was a director but at the same time there's this kind of constant 
terror of, can I pull this off? Am I, am I going to get away with it? I mean, he says at one point that being a director is, is kind of a process of accepting failure every day of, of, of finishing every day, feeling that you're completely doomed and, and thinking that maybe, maybe if, if everything goes right, you can pull yourself out of the fire the next day. I think he really felt that um, pretty much which straight is, through his career, which is, um, you know, just as I'm an improviser and that's how I came up that's what improv is, right? You get on stage and you are, you don't have a script and you're kind of finding this, you know, you're trying to act real. And, and sometimes it it's the most beautiful thing. And sometimes you just eat shit. I mean, and, and that's okay. And that's part of the, I mean, it's standups too. It's like, and I think there is that performer element of, let me just try it. I, it's, it's so bizarre to me because I think I was getting frustrated in the book Sometimes like, wait, why, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you do that? Why? Like, you know, like I want to see him like, I wanted to see him just click over. And I was so amazed at the detail and care he could take with something like closer at the very end of his career. But then you juxtapose that with like, what planet are you from? The, the Gary Shandling one, which seemed like, oh, it's like this weird money job and, and all the turmoil that went there. And I feel like that is, I just it was really hard for me to kind of put that together. Like, oh, how he could be, he was still with it, I guess, is what I'm saying at the end of his career. Like, he knew how to do both versions of it. One thing that really struck me, this was from both talking to Elaine May about their work together and from talking to Mike over the years was how incredibly vivid and like emotionally vivid the stories of his failures, of their failures at improv were. Like, it, the 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 stories about the really famous sketches uh, were really fun, and he told them a dozen times. But the stories about when he flopped, or when she flopped, or when they flopped together—I mean, Elaine May told me one. It's in the book about them getting on stage and realizing they they it's a phone call situation, and they they had come up with a situation that they realized too late allowed for neither of them to say a word, right? Um, <laughs> and and just. Like they both died in slow motion on stage and there was no way to get out of it. When she was telling me about that, she made it sound as if it had happened like yesterday. It, the, the feelings were that vivid. She almost shuddered talking about it. And, and I think in some ways, the thing that Mike got out of that was it doesn't kill you. Like you, you fall hard on your face, but you live to get on stage the next day. You you survive, and and maybe you even learn what you did wrong. And that was a really important part of Elaine's story that they that she said they figured out from that sketch bombing what they had done wrong and what they should never do again. And I think Mike's whole career, in a way, is I mean we we tend to define directorial careers by the successes, but Mike's career is also defined by how he learned to come back from his own failures, how how he learned to like incorporate a failure and figure out what to take from it and what the next thing that he should do was, which I found a really inspiring part of his story. I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing you, which may be paraphrasing Mike, which is like after a failure, you must follow it up with something extremely personal and small. And that idea is such a beautiful idea because I think it's always like getting back to the root of why you're doing it. Like what is something that makes you passionate about this business or whatever. And it, the choices that he makes after the failures 
it's really eye-opening, like what he chooses to do, whether or not that's starring in Virginia Woolf at one point or, you know, going back and, and taking this like uh, that Wallace Shawn play and, and doing like things like that. You know, it's like it's I mean, if you if you you could do a festival of Mike's post failure choices and you it would include acting in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on stage. Um, David Rabe's play Streamers, which many people said was the best thing he ever did on stage. Carnal Knowledge. Um, yeah. wit for HBO. I mean, it, you could ask, I guess, well, if he was so good at figuring out what to do after a failure, why wasn't he better at figuring out how to avoid the failure right. in yeah. the first place? But, um, you know, that that was in some ways a bigger challenge for him. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Save big money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at One thing I loved about the rhythm of his career was he's this roaring success as a performer with Elaine May. Then he does four straight New York stage hits in a row. Then he does Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate back to back. But then after that, for the next, you know, 45 years of his life, um, he has a more normal rhythm of there are successes, there are failures, there are big hits, there are things that do okay, there are nice comeback successes, there are big flops. So, you know, part of his story to me is like the story of growing up from the 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 guy with the Midas touch who, you know, can't do anything wrong and hasn't even hit 40 yet to someone who's in it for the long haul and, and is going to have to work with his own limitations and discover what he really loves and cares about and why he wants to direct, not just figuring out how to amass successes in the world, but what does directing mean to him? Right. Which is its own, I think, kind of deeper inspirational part of this book, you know, because it's hard to imagine any of us being born with like that Midas touch that he has, but to be able to keep doing the work every day. And what really struck me in this reading is, as he's climbing up in the world, as he's making that ascent, I don't, I didn't realize what an integral part Elizabeth Taylor was just in all of that. You know, how much the, the movie A Place in the Sun mattered to him, how much meeting her 
years before they did uh, Virginia Woolf together affected him, that she introduced him to the person who made him better two pays. I didn't know that he was bald his whole life also, oh by the gosh. way. Oh my gosh. So like the idea that he went through his life from a child being very insecure about never having hair because of, of, a, of a childhood vaccine... And Elizabeth Taylor helps him have good hair. I, I was really hard not to get into like cheap psychology. What did yeah. that mean to him? How does that shape you as a person? I got to say, and Mark, I've looked at so many pictures after this and before. Like, I know he, he talks and, and obviously felt that he had terrible wigs. I never, I mean, maybe I'm bad at seeing it, but like I was looking at the early versions, pictures of Mike Nichols. And I was like, this doesn't look that bad. Like, it doesn't look that bad. I, you no. know, but yeah. All 50s hair looks kind of glued on, doesn't it? All of it anyway. So. <laughs> it, it, it's true. It's true. And then, you know, by the time he got certainly to, to Broadway, they, they were really, really good. But yeah, it is a fascinating part of his story. I mean, especially because he was so composed he was so polished his, his self-presentation was so kind of elegant and practiced that it's jolting to realize that it was it looked practiced because it was practiced he had to like turn himself into himself every day that line stuck out to me more than any line in the book which was it takes me three hours to become mike nichols and whether or not that is how that translated later on in his life but that idea of like here is somebody the the book talks a lot about how he would stay in bed through college and, and like his depression sometimes would be just like he'd be in bed. Uh, and I was like, oh my God, I would probably stay in bed too if I knew like, it, you just can't get out of bed. You got to get out of bed and you got to put on that wig and you got to put on those eyebrows. And you, it's such a weight upon a depression to then also have to put your, your face on. I couldn't help but think about how that it would affect him. I mean, once he talked about just being exhausted from what he called the sheer effort of being a person that many hours a day. And that sounds like, in in one way, classic depression talking. But right. in another way, like, there's a very specific way in which it was an effort for him to be a person. Like, as you said, it's not just getting out of bed. It's getting out of bed and kind of putting your head on. That's, like, again, when I think of contemporary directors... Because I think in some ways Mike Nichols is not, and, and maybe Amy can talk about this, but like I think he's not a fashionable director in a way. He's not, he doesn't fit the model of what we now tend to look for in directors, which is mostly people who write their own scripts um, and who have a very specific kind of vision of the world or of America or of their art that they're going to kind of self-curate over several movies. Um, Mike Nichols was not, like that, the special things I think about his direction were largely collaborative. It was what he could elicit from a writer, in particular, what he could elicit from actors. Um, you know, the 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 way a particular moment in a performance could be shaped. That's that's not stuff that we tend to um, really revere in directors these days. Partly because if a director does it well, it it is made to look like it's somebody else's achievement, which is part of the point of directing, I think. I mean, yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because we have been talking about that, I think, even more and more on this show. We just recently did an episode on um, on Reiner, you know, Rob Reiner and like his string of 80s hits and how amazing they are. And like, I, I like poking holes in the idea of only the damaged, troubled auteur, um, you know, like that's the artist and people who are brilliant and collaborative aren't. And I 
I hate that type of thinking. So I love going on the attack against it. Well, I saw, I think it was maybe an onion story or an onion headline recently that said something like, um, wealthy introverted brothers in gated suburban community are under intense pressure to become indie filmmakers. (laughs) (laughs) That, that isn't Mike's story, but it is the, the, that's a story we're really familiar uh, with telling, but it's not the only story of how to be a director. It's funny that that kind of cliche then are the people who like get to tell the personal stories, the story that's already such a cliche or like, we must have this person who lives this micromanaged airless life to tell the story of his airless life over and over again and his clone and his other clone. I think there's something really interesting though. Like I look, I think at the end of the day, a lot of times we judge directors by how interesting is the shot? How, you know, composed is this? And, and, and really the best directors, you talk about the performances a lot more than you talk about, oh, who directed those performances? Like, wow, that was an amazing performance. And it's because that director gets them there. And I think that you do a beautiful job of showing how, whether it's like a door frame being too wide or too small or chairs in one spot, like Mike had this idea of like, he was really conducting an orchestra of artisans and going like, this is the right mix here. And when you read about his life, here's a man who is hanging out with Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Avedon, um, you know, in this circle of elite New York theater. But yet those are the stories that he really, like he never got above that. I feel like in a great way, like he always stayed in the grounded personal space. It was always very small. Like he didn't talk about being the super wealthy person or living in that world. Everything felt a lot smaller and, and, and uh, yeah, grittier to me a little bit. I, I think that's true. And I think it's partly because he, Although he did absolutely live in that world and was in many ways at the center of it, there was always this other part of him that felt like it could go away. That, that he's, he's only there because someone who really belongs in that world gave him a ticket into it, but that it could all erode instantly. Like when he has his, um, nervous breakdown, which I write about in the 1980s, I think it's really telling that, um, it it manifests itself in a fear that he's going to lose everything, that he's going to be a pauper, that he's going yeah. to um, lose all his money. And the times that he makes bad uh, decisions uh, in his career, whether it's doing um, What Planet Are You From or when he essentially prices himself out of this uh, version of La Caja Fall that he really wants to direct on Broadway, um, often it's it's a money decision that that – sends him astray. But I also think that in a way that the upside of that that paranoia, that constant concern, that that insider outsider feeling is that he didn't lose his really sharp ability to notice the little idiosyncratic pieces of behavior of people in that world. Um and and maybe if he'd been completely in it and completely comfortable with it, that kind of stuff is what he would have stopped noticing. But he was just outside of it all enough to like, be able to pick it out and, and help put it in a performance. Yeah, I mean, walking through his whole life the way that we get to in this book, Working Girl feels even more of a miracle to me because I love that movie so much. And he gets that movie. And I feel like he understands Tess so clearly. And to, and to put it, you know, decades into his career, how little I feel like he knew of a person like Tess, he would have known at that time. You know, you, you talk about him, like, not believing that girls from the island actually did dress like that until, like, his costume or yeah. show with him pictures. And like, no, really, this is what they look like. Like, they're almost a different species of human. And yet he 
I think that film has so much humanity and it's such, I mean, what is that? Is he just such a great listener? What is happening? Like, how does he pull that off? That movie is such a great example of how uh, movies that people love are often this collection of accidents and coincidences and, and struggles that don't show because, you know, of course there, there was terrible difficulty between him and Melanie Griffith, you know, uh, that was a, a druggy, time and um you know melanie griffith was has talked I, I think since then about um you know having a cocaine and alcohol problem while making the movie and so it was not an easy relationship between them while they were shooting and then also one thing i didn't know at all until i started doing interviews is that um the producer of working girl told me that in the first cut of the movie which was about 15 or 20 minutes longer did not work at all was not getting laughs. The story didn't play. And he said that what they discovered was that Mike had left a little too much time at the beginning of every scene and a little too much time at the end of every scene and that it was just enough time for audiences to say, uh, this is bullshit. This would never happen this way. <laughs> and, and as soon as they cut that out of every scene, the movie worked like a charm. And the same thing in some ways happened um, on uh, Carnal Knowledge. Jules Pfeiffer said that the first cut of that movie, he told Nichols, oh, you're trying to be too Bergman-esque. It's slow. It's ponderous. It's too self-important. And Nichols solved it with his editor by just uh, trimming the beginning and the end of each scene. And then, you know, it took him four days, and and he he went from that version to to the final cut of of Carnal Knowledge. So I, I don't know. It's it's there's something in there about not well, giving were, people too much. Well, you were saying too, and and this is I think a, a rule for comedy in general, and 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 uh, you know just being tight on your edits. And and Mike got to the point at, I think maybe after Carnal Knowledge where he would sometimes cut too much because he's like I like get get rid of it. Like he wanted like anything that didn't work was like jettisoned and sometimes maybe for better or for worse probably the better version is what you're saying in in working girl which is like trims not full extractions right right but i'm interested like i wonder if this resonated for you at all because one thing that i heard over and over again um was that mike was like very open and exploratory about drama and was really willing to like kind of be open-ended with an actor and help them find their way. But with comedy, like he would lay down the law. Like if he saw yeah. someone chasing a laugh or pandering or mugging to the audience or, or um, falling too much in love with a bit and holding onto it in performance after performance, he was ruthless about saying that's phony. It's not human. You're undercutting the whole enterprise. He was really, he was tough on people with comedy. Well, I think it all stems from at least the way that I came up in the improv world was this thing that came out of IO and um, and Second City to a certain extent, which is like playing it real, like play the scene like it's a drama, you know, react the way that you would react. Don't make every character with like a, a, a limp and a wig. You know, it's like you, ju you know, you you just play it real. And, and that was something always ingrained. And when I read this, I was like, oh, yeah, it makes sense because he's probably working with a lot of people whose backgrounds aren't comedy, you know, and sometimes he is working with. But and and you can play too much into it. One of the things I'm fascinated by, I wondered if you actually got to see it was, did you ever see the full uh, rules of comedy from Spamalot that he kept backstage? 
I did. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's not super long or anything. It's, it's, right. it's maybe about, um, uh, double the length of what I put in the book, but okay. um, it's, it's pretty great, you know, and, and, and in those rules, and I think they're literally called rules. Like you can, you can feel the, the, tough part of him. And I, with Spamalot was a thing where I got to talk to a lot of the actors involved. I mean, Hank Azaria, uh, uh, Christian Borle, uh, David Hyde Pierce, uh, people who are really good at um, comedy and really good at uh, improv. And they all said the same thing, which is that they thought it was so silly when Mike would say to them, uh, we have to tell a story. We are telling a story. It can't just be this loose, disconnected series of sketches. Even if the story is incredibly thin and silly, we have to tell the story yeah. like we believe in it. And and they all said, you know, in once they got into performance and, and once Mike started making cuts in the show, to that end, he was exactly right. And that's what made the show work. What is your favorite movie that he did uh do you like you know maybe or one that you know obviously there are the the staples but is there one that you maybe came to appreciate more in working on this or did it always stay the same for you my favorite it's a really boring answer because i've spent so many years now with the graduate and i've seen it so many times that i feel like it's it's part of my dna but i have to say like in re-watching everything over and over and over again for this book, um, I really kind of fell in love with Heartburn in a way that I did not expect to. Um, I had liked it. I saw it when it came out, but I, I wouldn't say that I had a particularly strong memory of it. And re-watching it for this and, and then reporting about it and writing about it, you could just see so many of his strengths as a director, all that really acute social observation, that that particular understanding of a class, that great, great knack for getting performances out of everyone, his complete comfort with working in a world of women. Um, I mean, Heartburn is written by a woman. It centers Meryl Streep. Um, it's got all kinds of other great actresses in it, you know, like Catherine O'Hara shows up. I, I think that movie has a ton of his strengths, and it's so interesting to me that it was just um, – brushed aside by critics when it opened by by almost entirely uh male critics it that was a real sort of lesson and turning point for me in working on the book to realize what kind of work is valued and what kind of work is mm-hmm. not very much i'm glad you brought that up we were actually just referring to that the other day because we did an episode on when harry met sally and so that's maybe that's a film we should dig out sometime, Paul. What do you think? Well, the the first movie I watched when I finished your book, Mark, was Heartburn. Because I was like, this was a movie that was in my house growing up. My mom watched Heartburn a million times. And when you you made this reference that it wasn't well received, I was like, well, no, that's a hit. That's a huge hit, that movie. I know that's a hit. Just because it was a part of my childhood in the background. And wow, I went back and watched it. And I was like, this movie is great. And I, and I feel it in a weird way. It was like a couple years earlier than Working Girl. Like, I feel like if it came out, like when Working Girl came out, it would have maybe hit that same, you know, ramp in a way. Because it's it's a solid movie. It's really, really good. Yeah, I think it got caught in this weird thresher of everyone deciding that this was going to be their opportunity to say something about the Carl Bernstein, Nora Ephron marriage and, right. and about the propriety of that novel. And, and, and it really just got... Um, punished in some ways, I think you're exactly right, by by its release date. If if there'd been a little more 
distance between the actual divorce and the novel and the movie, uh, maybe people would have been better about it. And you are exactly right. I mean, I feel like we still have that problem today with romantic comedies, even even being a female critic, even knowing that this happens, even getting mad when I see it happen. I think there is a tendency to like take half a letter grade off for some reason. You're like, it's just fluffy, though. I don't want to give it an A plus. I'll give it a B plus. Like it, it doesn't mean anything. And every time there's a few movies in my own past, I, I know I like took half a letter grade off and then rewatched them. Like, you're such an idiot. You told yourself not to do that. And then you did it again. I think there's something with a romantic film where if you get misty, you feel like the film tricked you and you're mad. You're like, I'm too smart to mm-hmm. fall for your tricks. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's this weird thing of... Uh, like, all successful movies make you feel something, but certain feelings make you feel more manipulated, I guess, than other mm-hmm. feelings, and, and romantic comedies is, is is one of them, I suppose. But so that was a really happy... Uh, discovery for me uh, like one of my, i'd seen all of mike's movies i think before i started working on the book and some of them you know you go into certain movies and you think oh maybe this will be my chance to really redeem this movie and you see the movie and you're like no that's pretty bad um like, <laughs> it, it just doesn't work does it um but but that but that one was a happy uh a happy one for me i really want to find now the television version of the British play that he did. Uh, that is Wallace Shawn run, right? The, where they, they taped it for TV and he was angry. The designated mourner. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. It, it, if you like do a little sort of comb through streaming services and maybe yeah. like check out Vimeo and like, got it, you can find it. Okay. It's pretty amazing because, um, he comes up with a really distinctive way of delivering his lines, which it, it, I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It, It's he constantly sounds like he's about to burp or he's having heartburn or something. It's this very eruptive kind of speech, but also he sounds so much like he sounded in conversation that it's like just a great chance to kind of listen to Mike at his most seductive and appealing and, and then you realize that he's playing this monster, this this moral monster, and and he totally uses it. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's a great performance. Now, Mark, this has been a lovely conversation, so I don't want to start a fight. I don't want to start any sort of a fight. I will say up front, <laughs> I am the person who doesn't like The Graduate um, for certain editing. Actually, what we're talking about, I think, is so interesting. I think if he had edited a little bit of the comedy out of that movie, I might have liked it more. Mm. Um, but... You thread such an interesting needle when you're talking about him making that film because you talk about how much he felt like he identified with Benjamin and how that was turning him into pretty much an asshole. Like you're not shy about saying what a, a horrible person he was to be around on that set because there's something in that character in this relationship that felt really vulnerable to him. And then you make this connection that had never occurred to me. It, this idea of like his proxy, Benjamin, at the end of the movie yelling Elaine over and over again, this like name of this woman who was such a figure in his life, in his own life. I'm embarrassed to tell you that I wrote an entire book about The Graduate, (laughs) and that did not occur to me (laughs) until I was doing this one. I mean, I could not believe it when it was sitting uh, right in front of my face. And 
And I ran back to the novel because I thought, oh, my God, if 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 this character isn't named Elaine, then I've really discovered something. But the character is named Elaine. On the other hand, he chose the novel. So, <laughs> you know, make of that what you will. It's 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 there. This is such a hard thing for me to write about. And it's something that really creative people do that I cannot pretend to understand, which is that he followed his subconscious like he he knew there was something in the story of Benjamin that he wanted to tell and he knew that the way Benjamin was described as looking in the novel which was very much like Robert Redford or you know some blonde I mean he goes and fights forest fires in the novel um oh, wow. he knew that that wasn't what he wanted and and he had such a strong vision for it that he was willing to cast a complete unknown Dustin Hoffman but he didn't know why he felt that way by his own description until years after making the movie. And, and that kind of like, I, I wonder about myself in, in those terms as a writer. And I wonder it about all creative people. Like how do you teach yourself to listen to something that you can't hear inside yourself? Um, just some, some instinct that tells you, yeah, go toward this. It's okay that you don't know why. It, it's enough that you just know that you want to go toward this. You'll figure out why later. Yeah. I, that I, I makes think, me think of meditation, <laughs> like Lynch and TM and everything. Well, this has been amazing to, to chat with you. I, I recommend everyone to get this book because, again, I don't think that you understand or and I was a, I was a Mike Nichols fan. I did not understand the tentacles that he weaved through actors, writers, popular entertainment, especially if you're a fan of our show, uh, Unspooled. We've talked about so many things that are a part of this book. Um, and I will say, and I, I may have written this in the tweet that I sent out too, the end of the book made me cry. I felt like I was at his memorial service and, and it was the journey that you took me on there. It was like, I'm literally just, I'm like in the in my kitchen, finishing a greeting. I'm like, and there's a tear coming down my face. I'm like, oh, but I've, you've really done this job of making the reader feel like a passenger in this man's life. And you were there and it's, it really, really was a, a beautiful ending. And the last week of his life leading up to that, that service at the, um, IAC building or whatever that is. And it, like, it really just, Oh, got me. It really, really got me. Oh, well, th thank you so much. I, the end, end of the book made me cry too. And it's not because like, Oh, look at my beautiful writing. I'm crying yeah. because I'm so good. It was, it was just because after all these years of, of, working on the book and thinking about him, it, I had to let go of him again. And I, I found that yeah. really tough. Well, Amy, I couldn't have been more happy to talk to Mark about all of this. It just, it makes me even more excited uh, just to tell people to pick up this book. Me too. There's like a gazillion other anecdotes I wanted to ask him about, but we would be here all day. So just exactly. read the book and you will also know the gazillion other anecdotes and you'll know like, Amy, why didn't you ask him about, about the time that Taylor got the assistant director fired on, on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Like, I wanted or, to. I wanted to ask or, Mark about everything. Or when they fired Robert De Niro from a Neil Simon movie two days into production and then they shut down the movie. A Neil, literally, he was the star of a Neil Simon film. They yeah. killed the whole movie. He studied under Strasberg. He studied under Strasberg right when everybody else was being famous. Oh, there's <laughs> so much I want to talk to him so about. So much to talk about. Well, get the book and uh, it's it really, it won't, it will do you right. Um, Alright, thanks for listening everybody. Bye for now.
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.